Let me ask you this. If you were about to torpedo your family by doing something awful and and self-destructive, would you want people around you that cared enough, who cared enough to get you to come to your senses and to stop? If your answer to that is yes, that would be a good thing. I hope that uh, you are in a, you're in a better place to understand why what we're going to talk about today is actually a good thing. A lot of people when we hear we're talking about church discipline and immediately go to the negative, go to the reason like I wouldn't want that, you know, stay out of my life, stay out of my business. But what I hope to, with God's help, to uh, communicate to you from Scripture is that church discipline is actually a good thing, that it is a, a blessing It is something to embrace, something to be glad about, and not something for us as individuals or as a church to just shy away from or push away. So let me give you a statement here at the beginning, and we're going to look at some scriptures, but healthy churches practice church discipline as instructed in God's Word. And we're going to see what that means and what God's Word has to say about this. And so before we get into the actual points, I want to read uh, with you two passages of scripture. So I encourage you, if you have uh, your Bible with you or if there's one um, you know, in the pew in front of you, first we're going to turn to Matthew 18 and read what Jesus here says uh, because this Matthew passage and the 1 Corinthians 5 chapter are going to be foundational uh, to trying to, in the short time that we have, to pull together basic biblical teachings about church discipline and what this is all about. And I hope that you can see that this is very applicable to everyday life as well. So Matthew 18, starting with verse 15, says, If your brother sins against you, okay, so you have someone, uh, it's not just talking about um, your physical brother, but uh, a, a fellow believer, uh, sins against you, what are you to do? It says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And Gentiles, the tax collectors, talking to his original audience, these would have been people that... Like, okay, these are the, um, the people that they would have considered are uh, uh, not part of uh, God's kingdom, the people that were not yet um, redeemed. Um, Jesus came to save Gentiles and tax collectors, but we'll explain more what he means by this. But notice it goes on and says, verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree about any." On earth about anything I ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Jesus is saying that this is something that as the church does this, he's going to be working with them through this. And that's where uh, that passage that says two or three are gathered, he's with them. That's in the context of of, um, church discipline and these things that are going on. All right, so the second passage I want you to look at is in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, in chapter 5. This is the whole chapter we're going to read. The message is not going to be just on this, but I think this sets the stage 
a lot for telling us the importance of church discipline, some basic truths, so we will read through it here. So Paul is writing to, uh, yeah, to Christians. They're in the city of Colossae, and they had a lot of problems. You read through the letters of 1 and 2 Corinthians, you see they had a lot of factions, they had a lot of issues, and one of the issues they had is they were letting some sins just go unchecked. And uh, he's going to talk here about somebody with a, a specific sin that he knows about that the church was not dealing with. All right. 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. So he's saying, I'm hearing about something. There's some sexual immorality uh, which happens. But he said, this is one that even the, the pagans, even the people in your city of Corinth that are known for their, uh, their sexuality, sexuality, their license, their um, uh, promiscuity, uh, that this is something they don't even do. This is something that they would say, this is messed up. He says, for a man has his father's wife. So what's going on here? He's saying the situation is there a man that is having uh, relations, it says, with his father's wife. Probably not with his biological mother, but with um, probably his, his stepmother. So that's what's going on here. Verse 2, and you are arrogant. They're proud. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And Paul is telling them, you guys are proud about this? You're arrogant about this? I think maybe what you had, a church here that had maybe a misunderstanding of what, it, what the love of God means, what the grace of God means, viewing it as just, it's a license to sin. And look how tolerant we are, that we're okay with even this. And we can see that in our world today, there's a lot of um, people that would claim to be Christians that are uh, either turned a blind eye to different sin because they don't want to deal with it, or even uh, will change what the Word of God says and give affirmation to things that God is clearly against. And Paul's saying that's not a good thing. This is not a good thing that you're doing. He says, for though absent in body, Paul is not with them, he says, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to, it gives strong language here, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. But then it gives a reason. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is referring to removing this person from the church. He had said this in end of verse 2, this person is to be removed from among you. And so taken out of this, the sphere of the church and put in, into the world. But the purpose of this, see, is in hopes that this man uh, will come to his senses. And that maybe by doing this, uh, it will help him to realize the seriousness of his sin. Uh, maybe by doing this, he will hit rock bottom, so to speak, and uh, just realize uh, what he's doing is, is wrong and bankrupt and uh, to be saved. What this is indicating is that this is maybe someone that was not genuinely saved to begin with, and that through this he'll recognize uh, that he actually needs salvation in Jesus Christ. But the goal is still a positive thing. It's not just to punish him, uh, but it is to uh, hopefully uh, produce good in his life. 
verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So if you bake something and you put yeast in it, you know, the yeast is going to spread through the whole lump of dough and, and uh, permeate it. In the same way, Paul is saying, if you don't deal with a, a sin like this, it's going to permeate, it's going to affect everyone else. There are certain sins that just, they, they spread uh, from one to another. And we have to be concerned not just with that person that's in sin, but with everyone else. So that's another purpose, why they need to do this. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, a new lump of dough, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been, sanct- has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, uh, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Paul had told them this in a previous letter, but now he needs to clarify. He says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Saying, I'm not telling you you need to just depart from this world or go to some island where there's no sinners around you. Uh, So he's clarifying. He says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother someone that claims to be a Christian if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So these are some strong words, some strong situations, Uh, but it gives us um, a lot of uh, insight into this uh, teaching about church discipline. So with these things in mind, uh, let's start thinking through this and putting together uh, what the Bible teaches as a whole about church discipline. And the first we see is, I want to talk about is that church discipline is not optional for a faithful church. Even from just what we've read so far, we can see this is not something that churches are allowed to just take it or leave it. It was not good for the church in Corinth to say, uh, we don't care that this is happening. We all know that it's happening. And some of us look at how good and tolerant we are. Paul was saying this is not a good thing that you're ignoring this issue. You need to be dealing with this issue instead. So it's not an optional thing. And actually, it's a good thing to have this. Discipline is something good to be thankful for. We just said Thanksgiving. You probably didn't think a church discipline is something you want to be thankful for, but I want to convince you that it actually is. And hopefully by the end of this uh, uh, message, you're going to, I hope, realize this. But it is a good thing to be thankful for because, well, discipline as a whole is a good thing. The writer to the Hebrews talks about discipline in Hebrews 12, 5 through 11. And he's talking about how God disciplines us. That even as uh, Christians, uh, God does not forsake disciplining us, but he does discipline us, and this is a good thing. Let me read Hebrews 12, 5 through 11. It says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. 
For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then uh, you are, are illegitimate children and not sons. He's saying uh, even earthly parents will discipline their kids because they're their kids, because they love them. And if they're not disciplining them, and it's sad to say, but there's a lot of parents that don't discipline their kids, uh, they're not treating them in love. They're not treating them the way that they ought to treat you know, their own kids. You know, we don't discipline other people's you know, kids, just pulling kids you know, off the street, but our kids, you know, we love them and we take care of them. And so if God is disciplining us, working that discipline in our lives through circumstances, through conviction, and I think through uh, other Christians, through the church family, that's one of the ways that he does this, but it's done in love because he cares. He's treating you as, uh, as his true child. Hebrews goes on to say, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. They did their best. As parents, we do our best. But we're not perfect. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Yeah, it is. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of, the, of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So discipline, it's a, it's a good thing. It is positive. You know, discipline, even has, it's from the same word as disciple. And so there is, um, you know, times where it needs to be corrective. There's other times, most of the time, where it's, you know, discipline is, uh, it's, it's a positive thing. If you're in sports and you're uh, engaging in discipline to get better at your sport, that's not a, a negative thing. It's part of the training. But there also is a time when there's correction that is needed. And so God wants to do this in our lives. Uh, parents want to do this in their kids' lives, not because they, they hate their kids, but because they love them. And they want them to be on the right track and to get back on the right track. And so we need to keep that in mind. That's the purpose of this. It's not for the purpose of punishing. It's not for the purpose of shaming. Uh, but it's done and needs to be done out of love uh, to help people to, to get back on the right track when is needed. So it's important to realize that discipline is not the same thing as punishment. Okay, Scripture teaches, uh, Romans 8, 1, that for those that are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Okay, so Christ has taken the punishment. He took the punishment for all believers when uh, he went to the cross and died in our place. And if you are here and you haven't accepted Christ as your Savior, I want you to know that Jesus went to the cross to save sinners. And if you turn to him in repentant faith, believing that Jesus Christ, the, the God-man, died on the cross for you, you realize that he took the punishment for you. And you can walk out of here uh, forgiven and reconciled to him. And so, but this doesn't mean that there's no discipline. Because we're adopted as his sons and daughters when we trust Christ as our Savior. And so now he's going to discipline us. But it's not, to, again, to punish us, but it's to help us to be who he has called us to be. To help us to become the, uh, the men and women that he wants us to be.
People don't talk about church discipline very much. It used to be considered one of the three marks of the church uh, by many Protestants coming out of the, the Reformation. I don't know if you knew that. They considered it when they thought of what is a true church. Uh, now, this is not a, a, a biblically inerrant list, uh, but there were those that they pointed from Scripture to uh, three things. And they said it's a church to be a true church has to have faithful preaching of God's word, has to have faithful administration of uh, baptism, the Lord's Supper. We're going to talk about that next week. And they included church discipline as one of those things. And so we think of that, it makes us think, well, why don't churches practice church discipline today? And let me give you, I think, a few of the reasons. Fear of lawsuits. People say, well, if we do this, we're going to get sued. And you do have to be careful how you do this. And uh, that's why this is, again, something that, at least the formal part of this, this is for members of the church. Fear of losing members or people that come. If we start doing this, you know, we're going to drive people away. They're not going to want to be here. If we have to call out people for their sins, we might have less people in seats. Or we might lose, uh, if we have to confront them, we might lose their friends, you know, too. So there's a lot of uh, churches that they want to keep the numbers up. And so they're not willing to do this. Some people have bad experiences in the past. Maybe they've been part of a church where it went uh, sideways, it was done wrong, it was received wrong, and so they just don't want to do it at all. There's the fear that it seems unloving, and we're supposed to be about, about love, and they feel that, well, if we do this, it's going to come across that we're unloving people. A lack of teaching on how to do it, that uh, people don't know what Scripture says, and therefore they don't know if they should, when they should, how to do this, how to do it well. An unwillingness to judge. You know, if there's one uh, verse that a lot of Americans know, it's where it says, uh, you know, do not judge. Uh, but in what we just read in 1 Corinthians 5, it says there is a place for a type of judging, not being judgmental. And we don't make the final verdict on anyone's life, but judging in the sense of discerning, there is a place uh, where churches and leaders of churches, there are things that we need to um, make discernment and to... Um, in a proper way, do what can be described as uh, judging, but in the right way. Um, other reasons people don't practice church discipline, churches, uh, leaders and members who put up with sin in their own lives. And so they don't want to come at other people when they realize they have the same skeletons in, in their closet. No, we are all sinners, that's true. And that's where we have to recognize this isn't about, uh, you know, someone just being perfect and uh, self-righteous, but it does mean that together we're, at times, we need to call each other from different sins and self-destructive behavior. You know, sin is always, sin is always self-destructive, and we don't want it for ourselves, and we don't want it for the people around us. And a practical thing, a lot of churches, um, you get to a certain size where they're too big, or the people don't even know each other, or it's just a mentality of coming in like you go to a theater, and so you don't have that type of relationship where you could actually ever do this type of thing. And sometimes people want it that way because they don't want people, you know, in their tent or in their business at all. But it makes it tough to do church discipline. Let me give you four reasons why we should do church discipline. And I think you can find these even from 1 Corinthians 5 that we just read. So biblical reasons to practice church discipline. 
First, it's for the good of the sinning Christian. I think we need to keep these purposes in mind so we're doing it in the right way. Uh, first and foremost, it's, it's for the good of that uh, sinning Christian, assuming they are a Christian. And if they profess to be a Christian but they're pretending, uh, we also want to use this to help them realize their need to come to Christ for real for the first time. So it's to correct and to restore them. Uh, we're going to see, and I'm going to say this many times, uh, that the goal is repentance and restoration. The goal is not punishment. The goal is not to humiliate. Uh, the goal is not uh, to make ourselves feel better or superior or vengeance upon people or spite. But we want to do, uh, if it's any level of church discipline, for the good of the person that, that needs the correction. And if that's you, if that's me, for other people coming around to help us with that as well. It's good to have other people that care about you enough to do this. Second, for the health of the body of Christ. And so you have a local church, which is a manifestation of the body of Christ, and we need to do this to keep sin from spreading, to keep people from doing it, uh, you know, by looking at that example and saying, well, I can do the same thing this person's doing. Uh, people see things and repeat things. So we want to keep the sin from spreading and, and hurting more people. We saw in 1 Corinthians 5, it talked about, you know, it being like leaven, something that, that spreads. And so it can be, it's infectious. You know, sin can be like a, like a cancer in a body. And so in the same way that uh, you don't want that spreading in a physical body, you don't want it spreading in the, the body of Christ as well. See, this is another reason why we can view church discipline as not a negative thing. Hopefully you don't view hospitals as a negative thing, even though they deal with sickness and trying to help uh, when there's problems in the physical body. You know, in the same way, church discipline, although it is not a fun thing to, to deal with, is about uh, dealing with problems in the, in the body of Christ. And that's a good thing that we need to do. We also need to do this to protect the reputation of Jesus Christ. As Christians, those that claim the name of Jesus Christ, uh, that we represent him to the world. And there are genuine Christians, and there are those that say that they're a Christian, and people look to them and say, well, that's a Christian there. And when people from the, the world look in and they see people claiming to be Christians that are living in, in terrible ways, um, what, does that bring glory to Jesus Christ or does that dishonor him? And in 1 Corinthians 5, we saw that Paul was saying, hey, you're becoming a joke here even among the, uh, the, the pagans in Corinth that you live around. That they're saying, we wouldn't even do that. This is, this is messed up. And there have been churches and entire denominations that have been in the news that have brought shame to Jesus Christ because they've approved of sin or because they've turned, they've turned a blind eye to serious things, even things such as child abuse. And that is wrong in so many levels, both for those that are abused and just think of just what it's also done to the reputation of Jesus Christ. And finally, simply because we're commanded to. Scripture tells us this is something we need to do. It is not a negotiable thing. We saw in 1 Corinthians 5. So, it's not optional. It is something we need to do. So, what is it? How does this work? 
First thing I think we need to realize, so this is point number two, uh, if we think about the process, is that most church discipline is actually informal. Okay? So what we think of as church discipline, if you're thinking, well, where does it go where you're, you're bringing somebody in front of the church and all this, is that what happened? Well, maybe we wouldn't even do it like that. But there's a very small amount of church discipline that would ever, hopefully ever get to that stage. But most of church discipline is things uh, that it's very informal, that you're not even going to realize that it's happening, that maybe, uh, in one sense, uh, church discipline has happened with you, but it's been so gentle, and it's been so much done out of love by people that know you, that have a relationship with you, that you really didn't even know what was going on. But that God used other Christians in your life to help you to stay on the path, to help you from veering off into something that would be self-destructive to you, to your family, and strengthening you to, to do the right thing and to live the way that Christ wants you to live. And so most of it is informal. We already looked at Matthew 18, but uh, pay attention again, verse 15 and, and 16 here, when it talks about some of these steps. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So I'm going to describe this as part of the informal part of church discipline. So at this point, you're not getting the, you know, the, the deacons or the pastors or elders involved at this point. It is an informal thing between uh, brothers or sisters in Christ. So a helpful diagram. And I took this from uh, the Handbook of Church Discipline by Jay Adams. And so I want to give you this as a resource to help kind of think through how this works. And it lists different stages of church discipline. And the first three here are what I would call the kind of informal stages of church discipline. Okay? And we're going to see that it goes from, it's kind of a, a cone here, it goes from smaller to bigger because as you go, there's more people that get involved with this. So even in Matthew, we saw it said, you know, go to somebody one-on-one, -on -one, talk to them individually. Uh, if you need to, if that isn't working, you can bring along uh, one or two others, you know, that can help along with this. But we see the principle is you try and keep it as small as you can. It doesn't need to, you know, go to everyone all at once. You've got a problem with someone, they have something they did against you. It doesn't need to be this major thing. You're putting on Facebook, you're, you know, gossiping to every friend that there is, uh, you know, uh, asking people for, you know, advice, but you ask, you know, 25 different people for advice, so basically you're telling everyone that there is. The principle is you try and deal with it as small as necessary. So, this is the informal part of church discipline, and three parts of this, and if you haven't looked uh, at the, the chart, it is in the back of your bulletin, you might be wondering, well, where's, where's three? Uh, because it talks about, uh, in Matthew, uh, one-on-one, one or two others, but Jay Adams uh, says, we could really think about it as one even before this that's even more foundational, and that is uh, just self-discipline. I think it's important to think about that and realize that. Think of how many problems can be solved uh, by just exercising self-discipline or self-control like we ought to. And that just, we have an impulse, do that impulse. Uh, as Christians, God, uh, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. 
that we're not just doing everything that we want to do, but we have a check on ourselves as well. And hopefully not just the external behavior, but we're also trying to check our hearts as well, because that's where behavior flows from. Uh, but it's good when we, we don't do those things. Um, I was talking with somebody uh, this morning that uh, said he was uh, having a, a rough time because uh, having some work done at the home and it was difficult and uh, said tongue-in-cheek that uh, kind of he's uh, kind of wanted to you know, kill the contractor, joking, uh, but said, but I didn't. And I think, you know, hey, good job. That's self-control. <laughs> There's sometimes we want to and not go that far, but even respond in a way that's unhealthy. But it's good when we sense that you know, we could want to do that and maybe the person seems like they need it, but we check ourselves and we exercise that self-control and we don't do these things. Man, so many people don't do that self-control that they just do whatever they want to do. That's a big thing as we teach our kids, you know, parents, is exercising that self-control. But let me say it again, it's not just a matter of screening the outside and just having a good filter, but it's even more important looking at the heart, because that's where the behavior comes from. So that's the first thing. Um, and so in that sense, hopefully we're all doing this part of church discipline on ourselves every moment of every day. But then there are times where it involves another person. And this is where Jesus says in Matthew 18, uh, 15, someone has sinned against you, what do you do about it? And he says the best thing to do is you go and you talk to that person in person. You deal with it hopefully one-on-one. So again, it's staying as small as possible. You don't have to just bring everybody into it. But think of how many times people do everything but this. They talk to everyone else except for the one person that they actually need to talk to. So Jesus is saying, when you can, go to that person. And I think in person is better. I mean, Paul sometimes wrote letters, but uh, it's going to usually be better if you can talk to them face to face. Now, there are things to think through. What is the best timing for this? Pick a good time to do this. When you have time, when hopefully it's going to be received well. Again, your goal is not just to vent on that person. I've seen times where people have claimed Matthew 18:15 as their opportunity to just, I'm gonna unleash on you everything I'm frustra- frustrated about. That's not the goal. It's not just to, to vent and unload but it is to hopefully uh, communicate something so that there can be a repair in the relationship and if there is something that's done wrong, an acknowledgement of that and change. This also means that you, if you are the person that is initiating this, going to the person that did wrong, okay, I would really encourage you to be praying about it. Don't do this without praying about it and praying hard because then it's almost a guarantee you're just going off to, to deal with that person out of spite or with the wrong attitude. So pray until God can help you to uh, deal with this in a way that you're looking at your own heart. You're not reacting out of your own frustration, uh, but dealing with this in the right way. Um, By the way, a great book on uh, dealing with conflict, personal conflict, is Ken Sandy's The Peacemaker. Highly recommend that. There's more details he goes into than we can do this morning. The next step is to bring along one or two others. So you've had the good faith effort, you've talked to them, and if it's something that uh, you have to continue to address, which by the way, you need wisdom, because sometimes there are things 
that you need to just let go of. Some, there are most things that people do that irritate you that you do not need to go to them about every little thing. We need to just say, you know what? I'm growing as a Christian, they're growing as a Christian, and I'm just going to bear with it, and that's okay. But there are some times where you need to address it and you need to talk to them. And so if it's something that this is such an issue that you do need to resolve this, bringing along one or two other people to help with this. Um, even best would be somebody that has a relationship with both of you that can be kind of a, a mediator, uh, somebody that can be kind of a bridge to help in the situation. But that is uh, what would be this step three, taking along one or two others. Again, the principle here is, in all of this is that the scope of involvement should be only as large as it needs to be. That we don't have to involve more people <clears throat> than needed. Now having said that, there are times where this exact sequence um, can't be followed exactly. There are times already where it's, something is known by everyone. There are also times where there might be issues of, of safety, um, situations of abuse. Okay, so I'm not saying in this that if there's a situation of abuse that you can't go and get help. Get the help that you need, okay? And there's certain things that uh, we're going to see, especially if there's issues of, um, well, if there's danger, if there's issues of, of child abuse, there's times where that needs to be reported even outside of the church family uh, as a definite thing that just has to happen. Um, so the general principle is you keep it as small as you can, but we're going to see there's also times where um, just in the real world, uh, there might be safety issues. Maybe you do need to bring along another person from the beginning if that's a genuine uh, concern. But the ideal is to do it as, as small as uh, possible. And just even before we go on, just to realize it is a blessing, a blessing to have friends who care enough to pull you back on the path to have friends that are willing to come alongside you instead of just, uh, just hating you or talking behind your back. So if there is a point where you have a friend that does uh, connect with you and says, hey, can we get together sometime? There's something I need to talk about. You know, we get defensive so easily, uh, but instead try to put yourself in the position of saying, I'm going to hear, I'm going to try and understand, and even if I don't completely agree, I'm going to try and uh, focus on that uh, hopefully this person is doing this out of love so that we can repair our relationship and that it is a good, it is a blessing to have people that are willing to do this. Because uh, other people, they'd just rather not. It's a messy thing to do. And uh, most people would just, most people don't love you enough to do this. But the people that really do love you are going to be willing to speak into your life. You know, preventative discipline is even better. And that's why Scripture talks so much about us encouraging one another, admonishing one another. If we can be doing this more and more, and honestly, that's part of what we're doing here. You know, every Sunday, we get together with the sermons. We, in Sunday school class, hopefully in conversations, and just time that you spend with Christian friends, that we're encouraging each other in the positive ways, strengthening our Christian lives and our walk so that we're strong, so that these problems don't even happen in the first place. 
And so that's why we need Christian brothers and sisters, other people around us that care about us, people that we care about, and we're willing to pour into their lives too. So this is the informal type of discipline, but there is also the next stage, which is the more formal type of church discipline. And God's word instructs us on how the church is to use formal discipline when necessary. And you think, well, do you do this for every little sin? I mean, we all sin constantly. Uh, sin is not just the big sins that are out there. I mean, we sin every day. Uh, every, you know, our hard attitudes, things that we should do that we don't do, these are all sins. And so a question you might have is, does this mean every one of those things should be uh, something that we deal with with church discipline? And I think the answer is no. Uh, one of the things that I thought was really helpful, there was a book on church discipline by Jonathan uh, Lehman, and in it he said church discipline, uh, he taught that formal church discipline at least should take place, uh, he put it this way, when sins are outward, serious, and unrepented. And I thought that's helpful, but I would need to clarify each of those and what that means. And I noticed in a later book, in the book um, Rediscovering Church, Rediscover Church, uh, by Colin Hansen and Jonathan Le- and same author Jonathan Lehman, kind of rephrased it a little bit. I thought this is even more helpful. That formal church dis- discipline should take place when sins are, and there's three, and it has to be all three of these. When sins are unrepented, okay, that's important. We don't do discipline for sins that people repent of. Okay, when there's genuine heart change, people recognize, they recognize it's a sin, and they want to turn from it, they want to fight against those sins. We don't do church discipline then. Because, again, church discipline is not punishment. Okay, it's not vengeance. We're going to see you when, wherever we're at in this process, when somebody genuinely repents, the process stops. Okay? This also means if you have a struggle in your life, okay, that you are battling against, that's not something we would do church discipline for. That's something that we would come alongside you and help you in that battle. Okay? So that's a big difference from just unrepented sin where you're okay with it, maybe you're even proud of it or uh, just being carried away by this sin. So for church discipline, it needs to be unrepented. It also needs to be uh, verifiable. I think this is a little bit better than just outward. Um, When we say that it needs to be outward, it gives the idea that, well, sins of the heart don't really matter. And really they do. I mean, sins of the heart, in some ways, are more serious than the outward sin. And that's where everything comes from. I mean, people commit, you know, other uh, things because of the things that are going on in their heart, whether it's pride, anger, lust, bitterness, greed. But the problem is, the, the reality is, that we can't police the heart. God can. God knows the heart. And hopefully God helps you know the heart so you can deal with it. But the only way that other people can know what's in your heart is when things come out of the heart. And therefore, church discipline we, is just a matter of reality, uh, at least at the formal level, can't be for things that, um, that, that haven't come out into the, the surface. Again, that doesn't mean these things are not serious, uh, but it's just beyond our scope and what we can do. Uh, so saying that they're outward or better verifiable, things we can know for sure that this is what's going on. 
And again, too, that does put some limits on things, too, because there's times that uh, for the church, you know, unless we're told about things, there's things we're not going to know about. That's just a reality. Uh, we don't have, you know, microphones in your home to monitor your behavior. We're not Google, okay? <laughs> so there are certain things that there are just limitations like that. And then the last one is significant. So it needs to be unrepentant and verifiable and significant. Maybe this is a little bit better than saying serious because, well, all sins are serious. Even the smallest sin, smallest quote, is against an infinitely holy God. And therefore, it's a big deal. Uh, but there are some sins that are more damaging than other sins are. And that's just the truth of it. There's some sins that are going to have more of an impact on your life, on your relationships, the lives of people around you. There's some sins that are going to leave more of a, just a trail of destruction. And some sins that are going to just honor the name of Christ more than others. And therefore, more significant in those senses. And therefore, those are things that it's going to be more likely that uh, they, they need to be dealt with. Um, you know, examples from the Bible could be things, you know, teaching heresy. Te- teaching people, you know, heretical things that needs to be dealt with. The uh, Bible talks about divisiveness, you know, destroying the body of Christ with, you know, factions, abuse, obviously, um, issues of, well, we've seen sexual license, but there's more different things. So there is a point where there are sins that, unless they're dealt with, and it's like a cancer, if it, if it can't be treated and dealt with, it just needs to be removed. And so formal church discipline needs to take place. Now, again, formal church discipline, uh, in this sense, is just for church members, okay? So this is something that would not be for, you know, visitors. Um, it's something that needs to be for those that are, to put themselves under the, the membership agreement. But this is a good thing to do and to be a part of this. Um, so 1 Corinthians 5.12 said, you know, this is not for, you know, the outsiders. We're not going pulling cars over on M37 you know, and bringing them in for church discipline, okay? But this is for people that claim to be Christians or especially people that are part of, you know, the, the family of Christ here. Um, having said that, it is also the responsibility of church leaders to protect the church from wolves. So if there's someone that they're becoming a part of, you know, the, the church family, if they're not an official member, but, you know, they're teaching false doctrine, uh, teaching something heretical, or they're, they're preying on people in one way or another, um, uh, financially, sexually, all kinds of different ways. Uh, those are things that I think church leaders are called to deal with. So back to the chart here, and I hope it is helpful. You get to the next stages, and four here is broken down into two parts, but these are the formal stages of formal church discipline. And so uh, four we can split that into two parts. This is where Jesus says, you know, if the other things haven't worked, you tell it to the church, bring it to the church. And I think out of wisdom, there's a stage where it is first to the church leaders. And if that doesn't work, then the whole body, the congregation is involved, the membership that is involved. So I think there's certain things where it does get to a point where it does need to be brought to the leaders. In our church, uh, According to our constitution, it lists both the pastors and the deacons as uh, being in charge of church discipline. Um, not that we want every little thing dealt with uh, in, in that level, 
but there are times where it needs to be brought to us and we need to handle it. Now, I don't think this means that we need to start all over with the pastor going or a deacon one-on-one to that person and then, you know, two people. That can be wise, though. And a lot of times we do it that way because the goal is to get people to respond. And so sometimes going in with the, uh, the least amount of you know, show of force necessary helps people to be less guarded, uh, to approach them in a way that hopefully they can respond in the right way. So we try to be as gentle as we can when we can do that. Um, but there are times, we see with Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, 5, where he skipped to the end. Everyone knew about it. They should have been dealing with it already. They hadn't. Um, but, you know, the ideal thing is we're trying for repentance. And so it might be that if it's brought to the church leaders, especially if it's something that's affecting a lot of people in the body of Christ, so we can deal with it and know what's going on. But then there's also a stage um, where it can go to the whole congregation. And we say that specifically the membership. And this would be something, this gets pretty rare, um, but where there would be a closed members-only meeting and it would be talked about and uh, said that there's a person that we're trying to, there's a serious issue, we're trying to bring this person to repentance and involving the entire congregation as a part of this. And so it's really getting uh, you know, larger in scope you know, at this point. I think it needs to be just church members for legal reasons as well as I think biblically, this is for people that they've, they're in this covenant together. Um, an example of this can be found in 2 Thessalonians 3. And here, you think, well, this is, isn't that serious, but Paul took it as serious. You had people that uh, had taken the teaching that Christ could return at any moment and said, well, if Christ could return at any moment, why should I work? I can just live off other people's uh, you know, money and, and their food. And so people were becoming just lazy mooches. And Paul had instructed them in 1 Thessalonians saying, don't do that. And now he gets even more serious here in 2 Thessalonians. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. You can read the rest of this in your Bible. It doesn't fit on the screen. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. And then at the end he says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So in this stage, Paul is saying, okay, the entire church family, it gets to a point uh, where the the person hasn't repented, where the whole church family uh, needs to be praying for this person and calling this person to repentance. Now, with each of these stages, you need to give time for the person, hopefully, to respond and to repent. Uh, But this would be a stage that I think can be used. It can be difficult in today's world. Uh, where if there's a serious thing where said this person's under church discipline for you give just as much information as needed, can't go into all the gory details, uh, but we're going to give this person time, be praying for this person, and during this time period, uh, we're not pretending that things are normal. We're not pretending that everything is just good and buddy-buddy. Uh, not to say you can't talk to this person, 
but it shouldn't be just, hey, let's joke around, let's go bowling, let's, no, it's if you're talking to this person, you're talking to them about, yeah, you need to stop cheating on your wife, and you need to go back to your family, and you need to repent. It's that type of thing. And hopefully, calling this person to repentance and to get back on track. Because the last thing after that is removal from, from the church, as we've seen talked about, and that is the, uh, the fifth and final. So up to this point, it's dealing with somebody as a brother, at least assuming that they're a Christian, treating them as a brother. But at the end, it talks about treating them as a Gentile or as a tax collector, someone that you're assuming is not a Christian. God alone knows the heart, but there does come a point where if someone is in serious, unrepented sin, it seems like God knows the heart, but as far as we can tell, all signs point to that you are not really a Christian. And therefore, we're gonna, we need to treat you in that way. It doesn't mean we hate them. It doesn't mean we stop praying for them and loving them. How do we treat people that aren't Christians? We love them and we pray for them. And we try to call them to know Jesus Christ and to repentance. Uh, but we don't pretend that they're brothers and sisters in Christ at that point. So this would be removal from the church. And the way Adams puts it, they're into, into the world. Um, as they're expelled, removed from regular uh, life of the church like that. And it's a serious thing. It definitely is. And uh, church discipline is definitely one of the, <laughs> the least fun things uh, for churches, and especially church leaders, um, to have to go through. Some final words on this. Well, we see some of this where it's taught in Matthew 18, 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to you to the church, let him to be you as a Gentile or tax collector. Uh, we saw it in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, this part of the process as well. Um, another verse that seems to talk about this as well would be Titus 3, 10 through 11. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Somebody that's trying to just bust up the body of Christ and divide it and being divisive like that. It's a damaging thing. So we see these stages. Again, remember, the goal is always repentance and restoration. Always got to keep that in mind. Whenever there's godly repentance, the process of church discipline stops and the process of healing and restoration begins. And I'm glad I can leave you with a positive note here. In 2 Corinthians, it's talking about someone, we don't know if it's the man from 1 Corinthians 5 with his you know, father's uh, wife or... Um, a different situation, might be a different situation, but somebody that was put under church discipline but now responded and repented. And Paul is telling him now, now what you need to do is you need to come alongside this person. This person is, is hurting, this person is fragile, and you need to reaffirm your love for this person. Paul says, yeah, it is, it is a painful thing. He says, now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. They've probably gotten at least to deep into stage four with church discipline, but the person responded. Verse seven, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. 
So again, this is when there is genuine repentance, godly repentance. There's such there's fake repentance, and we need to be able to discern when that is the case, when they're just the crocodile tears, but it's more about the consequences or being caught uh, than it is about the real thing, godly sorrow. Um, that's talked about in 2 Corinthians 7.10, for godly grief produces repentance and leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And note, restoration to fellowship does not always mean restoration to a specific ministry. I think it's important we have to say too, because sometimes people say, well, I repented of that, you know, put me right back on the deacon board or right back in the, you know, in the pulpit or in this ministry. There's certain times where you can be restored to fellowship but you're not going to be put back into a specific ministry. There's certain times where uh, you can, you know, there can be healing, but you're not going to be in a certain relationship with someone that maybe that has just been wrecked at a certain point. As far as church ministries, I mean, some obvious examples. I mean, if you just got busted embezzling, you know, from the church, you know, we're not going to put you in charge of the church checkbook, Okay. And there's certain things that if you've uh, got in trouble for something with kids, you know, there can be ways we can help you grow, but you're not going to be doing children's ministry. That's why we have a child protection policy that we take very seriously. It doesn't mean that abusers um, get to go back to those that they abused. Church discipline is messy and requires a lot of grace. Church leaders are imperfect, we're limited, we need grace. There are times where we're doing our best to make judgment calls, where it's tough to know what is the right thing, what is, when to do it, how to do it. Also, when people are in sin, they don't think straight. And something to remember, because remember you're thinking right now, yeah, I definitely want people doing this if I got off track. But the truth is, when someone gets off track, you're not thinking straight, and you're probably not going to be likely to respond well to it. Be praying for yourself now that if and when you ever do get off track, uh, that first of all, that well, pray that you don't. Pray that you have people that love you enough to pull you back on track and pray that God would be working in your heart so that you would respond well. But yeah, it's messy and there's people that you try to reach that are going to bite your hand as you're trying to get them out of the trap. Sinners will often try to get off in technicalities. This wasn't handled right or the process wasn't followed exactly. There will be more church discipline going on at any time than you'll know about because the informal stuff, you don't know about it and it just can be a constant thing. And so things, uh, it, is, it is tough. And you often won't know both sides. There are things that uh, sometimes leaders we can't or shouldn't publicly talk about. But in the positive, Christ promises to be with us in this. Remember he said, where there two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. We are sinners saved by grace. But this grace wasn't cheap. It cost Jesus Christ his blood and his life. And Christ died for you while you were still in the pigsty. But he doesn't want you to stay in the pigsty. We are not a perfect church, but in a healthy church, we're going to help each other out of the mud. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this tough teaching, Lord God. And Lord, help us to receive it in the right way, to be grateful for those that love us enough that they would help us out of our sin, Lord God, and onto the right path again. 
Lord, keep us from, from wearing, weaving, or from falling away from the path, Lord God. And if and when we do, help us to respond in genuine repentance quickly, Lord God. Be at work in those that are reaching out to us. Be at work in our lives as well. Help things to be done with the right attitude, uh, with as much gentleness as possible, uh, speaking truth in love, and may everything ultimately be for the glory of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the church family, and we thank you, Jesus, our head, that you came to save us while we were still in our sins, and that you died on the cross in our place. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.